uh, we have four books to go through. Um, it'll take us about three hours today. I know it's not a big deal because the Broncos have played, and uh, no one in here is a Vikings fan, right? Amen? John at chapter 20. You're getting sick of the Viking jokes two years in. Oh, friends. John chapter 20. It is good to be together, isn't it? Hey, you'll notice this year, this school year, we're doing something a little different. The middle schoolers are going to be in with us. We uh, are constantly asking the question, uh, how can we do things in a intergenerational, multi-generational type of way? And we think um, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders can be in here and engage in the worship and engage in the teaching. And um, this, Mike posted this picture. It's just really cool. Wednesday night was our kickoff for all things uh, student and kids ministry, which were amazing. But the top is our middle schoolers, and then the bottom is the high schoolers. And I was just sort of watching and, and hanging around, and it was really, really cool. We got a lot of students around here, and uh, we want them to see Jesus in you. And as they do that, that their faith would be formed, and they would have a lasting, lasting faith. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we open your word this morning, believing that um, you're going to meet us. The real us, not some facade that we bring into this room, but the real, actual lives that we have. Um, our hopes and our dreams, our, our pain, our sin and our brokenness, that you will come and you will do something in our lives. I believe that, and we open ourselves up to that this morning. Pray this in your name, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said... Amen. We're going to start a four-week series here this morning, um, just called Belief. And it is around the idea in the Gospels of this continual invitation to believe in Jesus Christ. And what I want to do is approach it from the idea of the things that get in the way. And so this morning we're going to talk about doubt, where faith and doubt are all, almost always seen as this warring, these two warring ideas. Next week we're going to talk about, look at the story of the woman at the well. And what does it mean to talk about believing in a pluralistic society where believing in one thing is sort of looked down upon? And then the last two weeks, we're going to look at the idea of, of sin. For a lot of us believing, we can't get past the idea that there's a loving God and there's nothing that you could do that would keep God's love away from you, um, except really choosing to repent and believe in that God. And then the last week, we're going to look at the story of the rich young ruler, and I think probably the most um, uh, applicable of these four sermons, which is what gets in the way of believing for Americans in a first world country, and it's just stuff. Stuff and things are often the impediment to us really believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. So excited about this series. I encourage you to bring friends out to it. Um, I think it will be good for all of us, but we want it to be a space where we can share our faith, learn how to talk about God. So the core of this series is this question, why is it so hard to believe? We say we believe. We're in Minnesota where 90 plus percent of you grew up in the church. I think we're just, just over 90 percent Catholic and Lutheran state. We went to church. We sort of know this deal, but do we really believe? There's the idea about knowing about God, but believing, trusting relationship in this God is hard. It's challenging. We all believe in certain things, right? We all believe in that. I believe that two plus two equals four. I know that to be true. 
Or I believe that the sun will rise tomorrow because it rose yesterday and the day before that and the day before. There's certain things that I just believe in. Some of them are logical and some are more experienced, but I have certain beliefs that are part of who I am. But on a societal level, believing in God is often looked down upon. Like have a relationship with Jesus Christ and to believe in one God is often looked down upon. It's not cool. Tim Keller wrote this book, The Reason for God, and the subtitle is Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And I think that's where a lot of us live. That to believe in one God, to have that relationship with Jesus Christ is looked down upon in the society in which we live. And then... We come into a space like this and we talk about the issue of doubt and we think we're often told that doubt and belief cannot coexist. And what I want to tell you this morning, what I want us to talk about this morning is I think doubt can actually be an invitation into a deeper faith. If we begin to view it how God would invite us to view it, I think it can be an invitation to a deeper faith. So before we jump into John chapter 20, let's just talk real quickly about what does it mean to believe. If we're going to talk about believing, what does it mean to believe? A few weeks ago, I brought a couple of guys up and did a trust fall. I'm not going to do that again because I don't believe they can catch me twice. But believe is to just trust. It's that simple. To believe in something is to simply trust. It doesn't mean you have it all figured out, you have everything together. It's just you trust in something. And that's what we want to talk about for the next four weeks. What does it mean to have a trusting relationship with God where we can move through or carry with us some of the things that tend to get in the way? John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. In John 20, we're at the end of the book of John. We've had the story of Jesus. And now Jesus has died. He's risen again. He's appeared to some of the disciples, appeared to some women. And we have the story of Thomas, who hasn't seen him yet. He's one of the followers says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Most commentators would say he's not with the disciples because he is in this despondent place. The one who claimed to be king is dead. And Thomas is simply walking around distraught because he had staked everything he had, what he believed in, all his hopes in this Jesus. Now this Jesus has died and he's just at his wit's end. And so verse 25 says this. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, you, you would think we have seen the Lord. I mean, get real excited, sort of, I, okay, let's, let's go see him. Now here it is. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Before you scoff at it, that's probably how a lot of us in this room would approach this. Like, give me all the facts, give me all the evidence, and then I will believe that this Jesus, this one that I'd stake my, my life on, is actually alive. And over the years, I think I've seen two different ways in which we, and by the way, when I say we, being skeptical, sort of doubting, is, is sort of a lifelong journey for me. I'm just a natural skeptic. But I think there's two ways in which a lot of us doubt, and maybe you, you have both of them inside of you. I think one is some of us doubt just logically. You're a lot like Thomas. You need every fact. You need to put it in your nice little box before you can actually believe and trust in something. It doesn't have to just be God. It can be anything. There's a 
guy by the name of Lee Strobel wrote a book called The Case for Christ. Brilliant guy. And uh, his story is this story. So here's a little video of him sharing his story. Lip reading. I mean, my background's in journalism and law. I tend to be a skeptical keep going person. From here. I was a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. So I needed evidence before I believe anything. One day my wife came up to me. She had been agnostic. And she said after a period of spiritual investigation, she decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, you know, this is the worst possible news I could get. I thought she was going to turn into some sexually repressed prude who's going to spend all of her time serving the poor in Skid Row somewhere. I thought this was the end of our marriage. But in the ensuing months, I saw positive changes in her values, in her character, in the way she related to me and the children. It was winsome, and it was attractive, and it made me want to check things out. So I went to church one day, uh, mainly to try to see if I could get her out of this cult that she's gotten involved in. But I heard the message of Jesus articulated for the first time in a way that I could understand it, that forgiveness is a free gift, and that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that we might spend eternity with him. And I walked out saying, I was still an atheist, but also saying, if this is true, this has huge implications for my life. And so I used my journalism training and legal training to begin an investigation into whether there was any credibility to Christianity or to any other world faith system for that matter. I did that for a year and nine months until November the 8th of 1981. And on that day, I realized that in light of the torrent of evidence flowing in the direction of the truth of Christianity, it would require more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Because to be an atheist, I would have to swim upstream against this torrent of evidence pointing toward the truth of Jesus Christ. And I couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and law to respond to truth. And so on that day, I received Jesus Christ as my forgiver and as my leader. And just like with my wife, my life began to change over time. My values, my character, the purpose of my life began to be transformed over time in a way that, as I look back, I can't imagine staying on the path I was on compared to the adventure and the fulfillment and the joy of following Jesus Christ. The idea of logical doubt that I need all the proofs set in place before I actually believe in God. And there's good to that. I think it, it can be overdone, but there is good to that. There's a couple really good resources. That's what these books are up here for. Um, one is called The Reason for God by Tim Keller, which is a fabulous book, sort of dealing with this. I, I need all my arguments set in place before I can put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, the uh, guy you just saw, is a fabulous book to think about what is the evidence for Christianity. And there is great evidence. Um, we don't put our faith in the evidence. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. But there is great evidence out there for God and the existence of God and the trustworthiness of Scripture. So there's logical doubt. That's a lot of us. I think a lot of us, though, struggle with experiential doubt. When we think about God and faith and trusting this whole deal, the thing that actually gets in the way is it doesn't line up with my experience. I can't trust that. I can't put my faith in that because it doesn't line up with what I see. How I see the world, maybe. I told you before the story of a young lady at the church I pastored in Philadelphia who came to Christ. But a real struggle for her in coming to faith in Christ was how could she trust a loving father when she was abused by her father? 
You see, her experience said one thing, and the message of God said another thing. We all have those types of things that experientially, sometimes it can't make sense. A couple great resources, and I point you to these because they're for you, and they're, I would say these are the books you buy and you share with friends. They're thoughtful, good resources. Simply Christian by N.T. Wright is amazing. It looks at the idea of Christianity not from logical sort of Here's the proof system. It says the yearnings, these things inside of us, they actually point us towards God. This longing for justice, this sense of we need to be in community and relationship, those actually tell us that there is a loving God who came and died and rose again and wants to be in a relationship with us. Mere Christianity, I mean, amazing, amazing book. And the Letters from a Skeptic by uh, Greg Boyd are great resources. If this is you or if you have people in your life you'd want to share those types of books with, they're, they're, they're phenomenal. So we keep reading, verse 26, as we think about the different ways that, that doubt is seen in Scripture and we doubt. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. There's a beautiful place here where Thomas, in his doubt, Jesus comes and meets him where he is. And it's actually Jesus. You're going to see touching and feeling. This is the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 27, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, My Lord, my God. Which echoes all the way back to John 1. The word was God. The Thomas, as he's moving through this doubt, acknowledges who Jesus is, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the ruler, the king of all, and he's God. He is fully God in human flesh. The one who came and died and rose again. The one who forgives sins. The one who heals. He is God. This statement is bold. It is huge. And then verse 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe. In the Gospel of John, that's the point of the whole book. Because if you believe and trust in this Jesus Christ, it will change everything will change everything. So my invitation for you this morning is not to see doubt as some competitor to faith, but perhaps to see it as an invitation to faith. There's a great text in Matthew 28, right before the Great Commission, right before Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. That text, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard it time and time again. Right before Jesus sends the disciples out to start this thing called the church, here's what the text says. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. This very crew of people who are gonna start the church as they enter into that amazing thing that we're a part of 2,000 years later, some of them are still wondering if it's true. And they're not kicked out because of their doubt. They're invited to be part of it. 
As we talk about believing, and if you are that person or you know somebody who struggles with doubt as almost a barrier to belief, I would hope, I would pray that you would begin to see your doubt as an invitation. That it's in your doubt that your faith can actually be strengthened. Like I said before, this has been a lifelong journey for me. Growing up, I saw faith and doubt as competitors, that I couldn't doubt. Everything had to be sealed and tied and need everything, so it sort of had to be proved. There could be no holes in my faith. And then as a young youth pastor, a year and a half into the deal, when the key kid in our youth group committed suicide, and I began struggling with questions around the problem of evil and bigger questions out there, and had this season of doubt that felt heavy, it felt weighty, and then through some relationships began to see that that skepticism, that doubt, could actually strengthen my faith. And on an ongoing basis, that's what it does. And I believe that's the invitation here, is to actually walk in through your doubt towards faith. Tim Keller says it this way. The reason for God, he says, A faith without some doubt is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience or the, ex- the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends. And their neighbors. Friends, it's in the context of the local church, it's in the context of community that we're able to wrestle with our doubts in a healthy way. We had a small group last spring that went through the, reason, the book A Reason for God for this simple reason that we want to create space, safe places at our church where you can wrestle with your hard questions. Where you can come in the context of community, come before God and say, here's what I'm dealing with. Here's my question. Here's my skepticism, whatever it might be, and understand God's okay with that. God is not afraid or offended by whatever your question, whatever your doubt might be. Because when I think, I think when we're really honest, We all have logical doubts and we all have experiential doubts that if we don't embrace them and walk towards Scripture, walk towards God, walk towards community, they could destroy our faith. I saw a video this last week that I think sums up sort of this idea of faith and doubt and what belief looks like. Check it out. Carl Sagan once said that uh, Buddhists believe their God is so great that he need not actually exist. (laughs) <laughs> which I think is, uh, which is, which is a really, I really like that because it reminds me of uh, St. Anselm of Canterbury's ontological argument for the existence of God about, you know, the fool says in his heart that there is no God, but by God he means that being then which no greater being can be conceived. And then it goes into this lovely 13-step proof that God must exist because we conceive of the word. It's logically perfect. It's completely unsatisfying. Faith ultimately can't be argued. Faith has to be felt. And hopefully you can still feel your faith fully and let your mind 
have a logical life of its own, and they do not defy each other, but complement each other. Because logic itself, I don't think, for me, and you know, uh, Aquinas might say differently, logic itself will not lead me to God, but my love of the world and my gratitude toward it will. And so hopefully I can use my mind to make my jokes and not deny my love for God at the same time. Uh, Stephen Colbert with a beard. Something great, great about that. Well, I was watching that and a little bit more of the interview, and the other thing you, you realize is he's, if you don't know who Stephen Colbert is, he had a show on Comedy Central, he's now replacing David Letterman, uh, you realize he's absolutely brilliant, um, super smart guy. But I, I think what he gets at is where a lot of us live, that I have questions, I wrestle with doubt, and it does not have to negate my faith. And if you've not put your faith in God, put your trust in Jesus Christ, it doesn't have to be a barrier to that relationship. You don't have to leave your doubt and blindly trust God. It's a relationship with a living God because of what Jesus has done for you. So what I want to invite you into, if this is you, if this is maybe someone around you, I want to invite you into a prayer this week. And there's a story in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9 about this guy whose son is demon-possessed. And uh, I'm going to pick it up halfway through. It says this. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for one who believes. And then here's the statement of the father. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Isn't that good? The invitation I want to give to you this morning, especially if you're like me, you're just a natural skeptic, you doubt, and maybe it's in the way of you trusting Jesus. Maybe it's in the way of you having that deeper, fuller life that God wants to give you. My invitation is simply this, to pray this prayer this week. Lord, help me to, to believe, even in my unbelief. Lord, help me to believe, even in my unbelief. Let's pray. God, for those of us in this room who are just natural skeptics, I pray that we would step into this prayer this week. That we would invite you to help us to believe in the middle of our doubt. Trusting that you meet us right where we're at, God. And Lord, for some in this room, that's been the barrier, the roadblock to actually trusting you, God. So, Lord, I pray like Lee Strobel that they would put their faith and trust in you even now and bring along all of that, all the questions, all the wonderings, that they would trust you and bring those fully to you. And so, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.